Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. In a few weeks, I'm gonna become a fan of something uh, that I'm a fan of, you know, every four years or so. Anybody take, what? FIFA. Football, as John uh, Asbury might say, or Toby would say, yeah, it's going to be exciting. World Cup time for Canada, and it's like the first time in, I don't know, 35 years or something, and so I'm going to be jumping on that bandwagon. Uh, Instead of seeing uh, it is one of the most boring sports in the world, when the stakes are high and uh, when you're an underdog, it actually gets pretty exciting. And I don't I don't know if there's anything more exciting in the world of sports than the way that a lot of these matches are going to be determined in the penalty kick, right? It's how tied games are settled. It's it's over in like that, but it's you either have a goal or you have a player who's kind of the chump. And uh well, you might think, how can I miss? The ball is placed 12 feet away, 12 yards away, and the goal is like eight yards wide and eight uh, feet high. And, but there's this interesting stat I came across about those kicks, and this comes from the famous economist Stephen Levitt who wrote Freakonomics. Goalkeepers jump to the left 57% of the time, and they jump to the right 41% of the time, which means they're planted in the center about two times out of 100. So in other words, wouldn't it be a safe bet that if you just kick the ball right down the middle, you'd score? But it only happens 17% of the time. Why? Well, he has this theory, um, you know, that because the keeper is standing right in the middle, and if you shoot it right at him, you'll look like a complete idiot. In other words, according to Stephen Levitt, it's, it's the fear of shame that prevents soccer players from considering this great statistical option. I, I'm, I'm learning as I study this topic of shame just what a motivational driver it is for many of us. Unconscious perhaps, but like deeply rooted. If you go all the way back to the beginning of God's story in the book of Genesis, you see this beautiful example of of life before shame. And then the tragedy of life after shame. You've got Adam and Eve who are in the garden and scripture says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, which is incredible because here you have a couple who had every reason to feel vulnerable and exposed and yet there's no sense of embarrassment, nothing to hide, nothing weighing them down. They were naked. 
enjoying the blessings and the beauty of God's creation, and they felt no shame. And then, if you know the story, our first parents succumbed to temptation, they disobeyed God, and sin entered the world. And when they sinned, immediately, they felt this deep-seated sense of, of shame. And right away, what did they do? They covered themselves up, and they hid because they just had this feeling, not only a feeling of having done wrong, but they had an identity that they were bad. And that's, that's why guilt is different from shame. We talked about this. Guilt is generally action-based. Shame is identity-based. Um, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. Brene Brown says, and, and if there's such a thing as an expert on shame, she might be it. She's done years of research on the subject. And here's what she says. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Or maybe in our context, we might say, how could God ever love someone like me? And this is so heartbreaking to me because many of us start to see God as the source or the main accuser of our shame. Even one of my favorite Psalms worries some people. Oh Lord, you have searched me. You know when I sit down, you know when I stand up. And y'all are not sure you want to be searched or known like that. Have God watching over you like that. You think of it like every thought, every action is being filed away, pulled out to, to shame us when the time comes. And you may have gotten some weird messages in your church upbringing growing up or from parents who, who made God some heavenly scold. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above. Sounds like a horror song when I sing it. <laughs> it doesn't feel all that loving, does it? Nietzsche's idea was to just get rid of God. And so in his writings, he invented a character who killed God. And, and someone asked the man why he killed God. And the man said, he had to. God knew too much. He said, he saw with eyes that saw everything, all my concealed disgrace and ugliness. So, so is God like one of those hidden cameras that stare day and night into jail cells or into the corners of the department store? Or is he more like a mother watching a toddler near a swimming pool? Or more like a father watching his daughter play the lead in the school play? A shepherd, maybe, who keeps his eyes on us, not to shame us, but rather to save us and to be a friend. Now, I, I understand when saints and prophets had visions of God, they often came away with this feeling that you might uh, think is shame. You know, take the prophet Isaiah, for example. When he saw the Lord revealed 
Uh, he was taken with his unbearable holiness. Woe is me, Isaiah says. I, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, Elijah was not a man of unclean lips. But even the purest person is going to feel stained when they look into perfect holiness. A lot of our liturgy over hundreds of years, many of our hymns and songs and sermons sometimes put the language of shame into our mouths. We are not so worthy as to you know, gather the crumbs under your table, Lord. I remember hymns that would go like this. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? You remember some of those? I, I took a young adult out for coffee who had been raised in Knack and who was no longer serving God. And uh, they had come to church that Sunday and just was, took exception with all the songs we sang that day that to her was like just talking of unworthiness. You are good, you are good when there's nothing good in me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. And then we sang reckless love. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And, and maybe it has not been well articulated in the church, or maybe it's just been misunderstood. Maybe it needs the spirit of God living inside you to truly understand. And I understand there's a, there's a tension, right? Because when you search for and you pursue the holiness of God, when you have an encounter with the living divine, perfect God, you should feel shaken, but not shamed. Look, I I don't feel shame uh, when I stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon, okay? I, I, why would I feel shame when I feel my smallness next to God's infinity? Like the Grand Canyon, I feel humbled, I feel, I feel odd, but my, but my ego, uh, or, or my ego is put in perspective, but I, I don't feel shame. And so when you inevitably compare and contrast your life to the life of Jesus, you might feel something that you think is shame. When I read how Jesus never waters down the truth, I feel this sort of falling short about how I can be a people pleaser. When, when I see the way Jesus did what was right at all times, even if it cost him his life, I feel the sting of my own cowardice. You know, I read about how clearly Jesus knew God's will, and I, I feel sheepish about how easily I lose my way. I compare his love with mine, and I'm embarrassed of my selfishness. But, but, that's the kind of pain that actually brings about healing. It's it's a conviction of your spirit. Our God is a God of grace. And it's a grace that overcomes the contrast of where I am and where I should be. And allows me to just rest in God's acceptance and favor and friendship. He says to me, because of Jesus, I see you as worthy. The psalmist says, no one who 
who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. So it breaks my heart that a person can catch a case of shame at church of all places. Some of you are still recovering. I'm also counting on the fact that some of you will also find healing from your shame at church as you encounter Jesus, as you encounter his people filled with the spirit of Jesus. I know just from personal experience that there are so many voices that can drown out the the voice of the tender shepherd. There's the voice of duty. God requires me to be perfect before I'll be acceptable to him. And you start to say, maybe I'm not born again at all. Maybe, uh, maybe I put on a show so as not to disappoint my small group leader. And then in addition to my normal failures, uh, now it turns out I'm a hypocrite. Or I wonder how many of you can even relate to this, that even hearing the message that Jesus died for my sins and that I can be saved by grace can actually send you into a shame spiral Grace, you know, is good news, but the good news might not feel that good to you. Grace might feel heavy to you because it meant the life of the blood flowing from this innocent Savior, um, taking on the guilt that was really ours. And in that sense, grace may feel heavy to some of you, And it's hard to feel grateful for a gift that you're constantly reminded of how unworthy you are to receive it. And so because of these mixed messages and misunderstanding and frankly misinterpretations, the the good word of grace never swam into your heart through all that spiritual sludge. Let, Let me just circle back to our families of origin and parents because unfortunately this is just a prime source of, of where some of us have picked up unhealthy shame. I, I'm not sure there are sadder stories than kids who have overtly or at least been functionally disowned. I'll, I'll bet there are adults in this room who are still living with that pain. Disowning a child is a sure way to get a child to feel like he's not worthy of of owning. Um, so-called very decent people disown their children. They, they may not do it totally, and they may not tell anyone about it. They may do it in bits and pieces with facial expressions or scolding voices or sanctimonious rebukes, and not say the exact words, I disown you. But the message is as clear to children, as clearly as if it were on a billboard. I wish I had a better word for it than disown, because when we talk about owning, it sounds like you know possessing a child, uh, which is not what I mean. It, it, and it gets conflated with slavery, which is not what I mean. There's even this new colloquial term of owning someone. You know, it's a put down, like the snarky comment that really owned the libs, or. Uh, you know, you really owned that guy in basketball yesterday. So let's just call it cherishing a child. The, the way every child ought to be thought of as someone who is cherished. The way little Haven Robinson is cherished, which, which means adults who will take responsibility for them, feel pride in them, find joy in them. 
uh, the cherished child can say, I am someone who has been loved from the beginning of my life. I am someone whom someone else made an unconditional commitment from the beginning. I am someone whose parents consider me worthy of the love they give. And now I have the power to cherish myself. I take responsibility for my life. I am proud of who I am. I have a joy in being myself. For those of you given up for adoption, your feelings might be saying, if I had been worth it to her, my mother could have found a way to keep me. Uh, Would she have kept me if she could see me now? And often the lack of cherishing is not an act of maliciousness. There's tired and discouraged single parents sometimes, unable to take pride in their child because they don't have the wherewithal to take pride in themselves. But still the damage is done, passed on. The sin of the father becomes the shame of the daughter and the shame of the daughter robs her of the power to take pride in herself. Parents disown a child by showing no joy in their existence. I read the story of a woman named Elizabeth. I don't know if that's her real name. But she knew early on that she was an unexpected child, born much later in life uh, to her parents. But the message was clear. She was not just unexpected. She was unwanted. She was like an unclean piece of freight that they had to lug around for the rest of their lives. And Elizabeth determined to live the sort of life that matched a child whose very existence was a a shame to her parents. And so she rode off into the wilderness with some biker on the seat of a Harley, a guy who had mastered the skill of making a woman feel unworthy. And she lived with him for a brutal year or so, long enough to have a smashed nose and a couple abortions and an on-again, off-again drug habit, all of which added to her undeserved shame. And all the while her shame convinced her that she didn't even deserve better. The heartbreaking power of a disowned child. Can't you ever get anything through your thick head? You know, words like that may have escaped all our mouths at some point, but for those kids, that's the mantra that they hear from their parents on the regular. That is their identity. I've seen it in fathers who who look and act like the Lord himself coming down from Mount Sinai and who are expert at making a child feel like an unworthy object. Someone who takes no joy in their kid. Supposedly strong men who have no patience for masculine weakness and they have this natural talent for shaming a sensitive boy. Uh, Look, I'd be surprised if every parent didn't have some moments where they felt zero joy in their child. Those colicky days, Robinsons, that was not fun. Let me tell you something, just between us, kids can be ruthless. They act as if they can treat us like slaves. 
He used to sing while my kids were demanding things. I'm no longer a slave to my kids. Um, Entitled at times, as if we had nothing else to do in the world but to make them comfortable. They're jealous of any moment we pay attention to another person. Uh, They quite literally spit out the food that we give them. Uh, we, We yell at them. We lock ourselves in the bathroom just to get a moment of peace or to cry. (laughs) We all have mistakes with our children that we need to look back on with some regret and maybe even seek forgiveness. But what I'm talking about here is a pattern, a prevailing mood. Some parents hardly ever assume responsibility, hardly ever display pride or joy in their child. They seldom give the voice, the touch of love And their child gets a certain signal, at least in some ways, that that they are disowned. And when a child feels disowned, you know what happens next? She blames herself. If she is not cherished by her parents, it can only be that she's not good enough, um, beautiful enough, worth cherishing. That's, that's, that is what unhealthy shame is about, feeling we are not worthy of being cherished or cherishing ourselves. This is why when we are healed of shame, one of the surest signs of healing is the power to love ourselves again. If, if you ever have the chance to talk to uh, Harvey and Julie Beishausen or, or others in our church who have Dozens of kids who they fostered, long-term, short-term, respite care. Kids who had not been cherished. Kids who had not been a source of joy. Kids who often acted out on their trauma in, in really difficult behaviors, but got a chance to be loved. And loved with the love of Jesus. And so whether it was for a short time or for a, a long time or a lifetime, I know those kids got to be cherished. And so I'm thankful for Christian foster parents, Christian adoptive parents. So there are those who are going to need healing from their past, their graceless religions, their toxic churches, their unhealthy childhoods. But there comes a time, particularly for adults, where where you can't live in blame of the other, where you can't be living in the past anymore. In fact, you may have to come to a difficult realization of how you continue to perpetuate shame on yourself. As much as as we did not deserve this shame, some of us might be co-conspirators in continuing to nurture this sense of chronic shame, a lifestyle of shame, after all the hurts we have received, I believe still that we are responsible for what we do with what other people have done to us. Cruel as it sounds, sometimes we suffer the shame we don't deserve because we continue to deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves with plausible reasons about why we should feel unworthy. Uh, It's why so often we need outside help, divine help, and, and healing from God, human help from an honest community, from counselors and therapists and a trustworthy small group to 
to help uncover our own self-deceit. Why do we keep perpetuating this lie of shame? Um, Somebody smarter than me needs to speak to that. All I know is this, that this deceit we continue to live out, it steals our joy. It, It makes us spiritually heavy. One of the ways the lie rears its ugly head is that shame-prone people find a way to discount all their positives. They could hear a choir of 500 voices singing an anthem of how, how, how many good qualities they have and not be able to hear a word of it. Or they'll tell themselves that people who praise them aren't sincere. Or, or if those people really knew the truth about them, they wouldn't say those things. They find a way to disqualify whatever good other people see in them. And no matter what, if they are successful at, uh, it's like they inwardly discount their own successes. You know someone like this, I'll bet. Are you someone like this? And then, of course, shame-burdened people inflate their negatives just as they discount their positives. Shame-prone people are, are dogged by this unrelenting and unspecific obligation to be perfect, to some unspecified ideal. And since no one can ever live up to ideals that you can't describe, they, they doom themselves to always be haunted by failure. Isn't that messed up? Like, we'll take on a standard that we ourselves cannot define to guarantee that we'll never achieve it. Shame-prone people hear a criticism of one thing they did and feel as if their character is being called into, into question. Criticism of what they do turns into a judgment of who they are. Why, why does his wife's trivial criticism give him such grief? Could it be that he's even battling his wife with the rage he feels towards himself? Shame-prone people have a hunch that other people have the same negative feelings about them. They read into other people's faces and motives their own shame. In Hebrews 12, the the author of this book shows us something so powerful. It's something that I've read dozens, maybe hundreds of times, but it's starting to take on new meaning for me as I immerse myself in this topic of shame. It speaks of Jesus on the cross, preparing to give his life. And scripture says this, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He joyfully endured the cross because of what was coming, because of what he knew it would do for our lives. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And then there's three little words that are so powerful. Scorning its shame, despising it, loathing it, hating it, ridiculing it. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is so incredible to me. Jesus endured the cross. He scorned the shame. Every fiber of his righteousness, every part of of heaven in the flesh, loathed, hated, rejected, scorned the shame that robs people of their intimacy with God. It robs people of their joy. It robs them of the abundant life that Jesus offers. From the beginning of time, God scorned the shame in the Garden of Eden. He, he, 
He hated the shame of David's adultery, of Peter's denial. All, all sins that he forgave, by the way. Oh, but he hates the shame. And in this very same way, God scorns the shame that is crushing your soul. He despises the shame that you feel from your lies or your eating habits or your secret sexual sins. He loathes the shame you feel from your financial failure, from your, your deepest secrets, your darkest hurts. He scorns the shame of how you feel when you look at the wrong thing or think the wrong thought or say the wrong thing. He hates the shame that you endure because of what you shoulda, coulda, didn't say, didn't do. He despises the shame of your self-doubt and your self-hatred. He doesn't hate you. He, he doesn't scorn you. It's actually because he loves you so much that he scorns the shame of what you felt like back then and how you don't like yourself now. And for me, he scorns the shame that I feel when I can't fix the problems or lead the church like I think I ought to or when I feel like I'll never be enough. And the Son of God, God in the flesh, stripped down naked on this instrument of torture called a cross. As his creation, those he came to love, mocked him, cursed him, spit on him. Jesus was saying, I despise you, shame. You are nothing to me. My Father sent me to seek and save the lost. My God sent me to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's why, shame, you have no power compared to the joy set before me. You are nothing, shame. Shame, you can't distract me. You can't discourage me. You can't defeat me. You are almost finished. And Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, forgive these people who are hurting and trying to hurt me. They don't even realize how shame has turned them into shamers. Forgive them. And his last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Lamb of God gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he breathed his last, the earth shook and it went dark. Day one, people waited. And day two, they started to lose hope. And day three, they said, I guess he wasn't who he said he was. But then a couple of ladies went out to check on the grave and the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and Christ was not there. And because of his death, because of his resurrection, we can be made new and we can be forgiven and we can be healed of shame. And next week, we're going to talk about some practical steps to being free of shame. But here's how I think it starts. It starts right from that Hebrews verse where we move the focus from you and we turn it to Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to move the focus from what you did and who you think you are to what Jesus did and to who you know him to be? What might that look for you? It might be you saying, my mind is telling me I'm horrible. My feelings are telling me I'm bad. But because of Christ, I am forgiven. 
He calls me saint. He calls me friend. For someone else, it might be saying, I've had this nagging feeling my whole life that I'm unwanted. But because of Christ, I know I am loved. I'm accepted. I'm adopted. I am chosen. I'm set apart. I am called by God because of Christ. Jonathan, I can't fix it all, but Jesus never asked me to. And one day, in his perfect timing, he will fix it all. Jonathan, shame is telling you to carry the burden of everyone that comes across your way. But Jesus says, I'll take the burden. It was never meant for you to carry. Shame was lying to you. I'll take the burden and give you my yoke, which is easy and light. That's my gift to you. Shame off you in Jesus' name. Shame off you, Jesus is saying. Jesus endured the cross joyfully so that he could say to you today, shame off you. Shame off you. Shame doesn't have power over you anymore. I want to invite us to come to communion. The communion table is open to anyone who knows that they're in need of a Savior. A lot of what we do in our faith, a lot of what we've done today, you could say is bittersweet. At the beginning of the service, we acknowledged um, death, and we acknowledged celebration and new life. Bittersweet. Today we remember that our shame is paid for. It's been taken off our shoulders, but it came at a price, the body and the blood of our perfect, innocent Savior. It's bittersweet. We remember you today, Jesus. I'm gonna invite our elders to come to their stations. We have four stations here at the front as we sing. I invite you to come, receive the elements, and just receive them right there, the, the, the body and the blood. Allow our elders just to speak over you as you come and say, the body and the blood of Jesus who's taken away your shame. Let's worship together. Come on up.